All right. So my name is Markus, and I welcome you to the Jung Help Desk Meetup Group and a very special event with the topic of life. This is the biggest meetup group in Europe, which is not very hard because there's only one group. And I start this meetup group this year, but I played around longer with the thought because I wanted to give a platform where it's possible to get to know Jungian concepts in a very, let's say, pure manner. I read a lot of Jung. I read almost all the books that are commercially available. And it took me now almost three years where I read every day 20 pages. And he has written really a lot there. You have the whole collective works. There's 19 books. It's just like a meter of books, fat stack. And you have seminars. You have his autobiography. You have talks of him. You have letters, a lot of books with letters. And I always try to find videos or podcasts or articles describing Jungian concepts to understand them better. And the more I read about those, the more I realized that they're all a little bit mushy and they're missing some aspects because Jung has really a lot of aspects and a lot of them get dropped. So I realized the concepts are not so good. And I joined a lot of other meetups. People were there always very open and very curious about Jungian concepts. And I thought, okay, good, I start my own group. We have almost 180 people, which is great. Events are every two weeks. Normally, the, the structure for the new guys is I give a little presentation about a topic, and then we can get in a discussion about it to go more in-depth. Also, give, get your viewpoint on it. I would talk a little bit about Jung's life first, because it fits very nicely today's topic. Jung was born in Switzerland in 1875. His father was a pastor. They had this, let's say, inside joke that he maybe took a little bit too serious that he might be the unofficial grandson of Goethe. This spawned a lifelong interest of him into Goethe and his works. He grew up a bit of a rural area that he didn't leave really until his 18th birthday. He moved after school to Basel uh, to learn there as a student. Then he came into contact with psychology and said, this is really what I want to do. First, he didn't want to do it because his father was a little bit psychologically inclined and had a bit of training there. He did it in secret. So he studied, finished in this very new field of psychotherapy and psychology, which was back then cutting edge science, how to deal with people who have psychological problems. And it was really a big shift in time of the whole mentality. How do we treat people who have psychological problems? Because back then, the consensus was the people have damaged brains. Basically, you can't help them. You just put them away in some hole and wait till they die. So the conditions were horrendous. The treatment was horrendous. This changed with the emergence of psychoanalysis and with Freud, who proposed this talking therapy to help people work through their problems uh, through words. Um, after university, he started to practice an institution called Berkeley, who dealt with schizophrenics and neurotics and so on. There he started really an academic career. He started also to teach. He made experiments, read papers, published papers, got pretty famous already in those circles. And there he came into contact with Freud's ideas. He was an instant defender of Freud. They met then later, and the first time they met, they talked for 13 hours straight. Out of this became a very, very close friendship. And Freud was already older than Jung, roughly by 20 years, or I think even more. So Freud was looking for a successor for, to bring psychoanalysis in a new era 
to defend was already has been established because there was always a lot of pressure on psychology and uh, psychoanalysis. This friendship lasted six years, but they diverged at the end because Jung was always fascinated with the occult, the spiritual religion and so on. And Freud wasn't really a big fan of it. And he thought that Jung might grow out of it. He even thought that Jung had a father complex that was just fostering his uh, interest in, in religion and so on. For which uh, Jung replied, no, <laughs> I don't have a father complex. I have a mother complex, which is maybe the most psychoanalytic rebuttal you can think of. Once they departed, which was about 1913, Jung started to have visions, pretty strong visions that weren't known to the public until much later. And in these visions, he saw Europe drowning in blood and corpses was telling him that all this will come to pass. Uh, and he thought he was going crazy and up until the point when the First World War started, 1914, where he got a little bit relieved because this was like a classic uh, prophetic vision. And he started to record his dreams, use a technique called active imagination, where you try to get into your fantasy world. And he started to write down everything and he collected it in black books. Out of that, he created the Red Book, which is a distillation of these experiences and to, to find like a common theme, common threads and so on. With his visions and with this break of Freud, he, his academic career died because Freud was incredibly important for psychology and psychoanalysis and he pretty much sealed the academic fate of Jung. So he stopped teaching. He only practiced helping patients, like a little praxis. And this is where a new stage of Jung's life started. And it was, I think, roughly with 38. And just remember this number, it will come up again. In this investigation into his inner world, he laid the foundations for everything that Jung is mostly known for, the collective unconscious, anima, animus, shadow. These cultural aspects became very important for him. So in the past, it was extremely academic, extremely scientific, psychoanalysis, publishing papers, giving talks. And here, this spiritual part of his life takes over. And he does this for 13 years. He tries to explore scientifically the experiences he had and builds all those very interesting concepts about how the psyche is structured. He draws from different sources of mythology to find common themes and threads to get insight into human nature, basically the part in us that, is, that we have common with everybody else and every other person in the world. Uh, he does this, as I said, for 13 years until he gets a copy in his hand. It's a translated book about Chinese alchemy, The Secret of the Golden Flower, I think it's called. And he has, is asked to write the foreword for it. And he reads the translation and finds extreme overlap between his experience and this experience. These, let's say, the wisdom formulated in the book. And this is a very old book, a very old Chinese book. This is when he really starts to investigate a lot of in alchemy and he won't stop till the end of his life talking about alchemy. And he sees a unique chance in alchemy to um, understand not only how the mind works, but also the, the modern mind. So extremely prolific uh, works till the end of his life, which was in 1961. So born in 1875 died in 1961. Uh, shortly before his death, he wrote a little book called Man and His Symbols. This is an introductory work into his whole body of work. And he's written really, as I said, a lot, a very complex and a lot of different facets. What I've noticed when I encountered other explanations about Jung, 
that they are often missing this psychoanalytic part. So he diverged from psychoanalysis with his departure, uh, this separation from Freud, and he, he founded something of a movement called uh, analytical psychology, which is then different than psychoanalysis, but a lot of foundations are the same. So it's a little bit thinking about libido differently and so on. But the, Jung's work is on a very firm psychoanalytic foundation. All the work later in life, it's always built on the former phase of his life. So this is why the alchemy stuff is so hard to understand because you have to understand everything that Jung has written before to get an idea why he is so interested in this very, very niche topic. So this would be the story about his life. Now I want to tell you about his views on life in general. So like a normal basic life that everybody goes through. For those who read the description for this event, I had a very specific metaphor in there, and it's from Jung. It's that of the sun during the day, so that it rises from the horizon, travels over the sky, and then disappears again behind the horizon. Jung describes the, the life of people in this way, so especially the consciousness of people. So when a human being is born, it's a child, it's this first rays of sunlight coming from the horizon the, the sunrise. When you have little children, they have close to no real, he calls it ego, the center of consciousness. This is a phenomena that is able to experience and to assert will. This is lacking in children. Children are pure instincts and they are pure human nature. And it takes a while for this ego to emerge out of this black mass of unconsciousness. It's like this little island coming out of the sea. This is also a metaphor that Jung uses very often. So in the beginning, consciousness is very fragile, very easy to disturb. When you have a child, it has difficulty to do anything willfully for long stretches of time. But it gets better when the child gets older. So the world of the child is extremely subjective. So everybody who had contact with, with smaller children knows that uh, they make up the rules of a game newly while playing the game. So you try to get something objective to them. It's like, this is a game and these are the rules. And when the child is very young, it's incredibly hard to play the game because the child will say, no, I'm winning because of that. No, this doesn't happen and so on. So it's pure subjectivity. You can even do tests on it. So in Germany, for those who are not grown up in Germany, before a child can enter school, elementary school, they have to do a test. It's like a little bit of physical test, but also a cognitive test where they get certain tasks and they just look if the child is able to do it. One task, for example, is what the name of your parents to really dissociate mother and father that they also have a name which is different than mother and father and also like okay draw for example a human being whether the child really does this and draw a human being or instead draws a dinosaur i know this because i drawn the dinosaur <laughs> which uh, almost got me not enrolled into school it's it's just that this possibility and ability to steer actions to adhere to objective factors, to believe that things are happening outside of yourself, that the world is more than yourself, is an important part of developmental psychology. 
When this is not yet developed, children are incredibly close to the collective unconscious. So they are very open for mythology and fairy tales and so on, because these are products of the collective unconscious. The dreams that children have, Jung was also very dream, big into dream interpretation, that's because of his psychoanalytic roots, are archetypal in nature. You get images and pictures and situations which are not from the subjective situation of the child, but rather of collective source, where you have images that popped up in different cultures, different epochs that were completely separated from, from each other. Jung noted that this could be one of the reasons why in the eastern part of the world, children were seen as born again, because they had this weird specific knowledge about specific cultural concepts where people thought, okay, they already know this is because they are born again. Children are still completely in the subjective. They are still this little sun rising over the horizon. It is the scope of the world gets bigger and bigger as the sun rises and as the consciousness develops and as the person gets older. And it's first this absolute subjectivity Everything is, exists because of me, that expands to the family, to immediate mother-father. Mother-father become the whole world, the family becomes the whole world, and then it starts just seeping in. Ah, my immediate surroundings are the whole world, and the world gets bigger and bigger and bigger as the child progresses. This is the trajectory of a person of consciousness, that it rises and rises and expanding and expanding. This cultivation of consciousness and of will is one of the main goals for education. Like when you educate a small child in school or at home, you try to get them to be able to do complex things for a long amount of time, to do and act in willful actions and so on, to follow rules. This pushes the child more and more away from the family to the society at large to establish itself there, to not only get an education, but get a job, get a career, find a partner, start a family, have a house, have hobbies, get recognition, to do things that are socially positively regarded and to establish themselves in the world. When something fails, there's always a new chance, there's always new time, there's always a hopeful outlook into the future because it's establishing, it's ever expanding its everyday new possibilities. And Jung says this is right up to the point where the sun is at the highest point. And then this shift takes place. So as I said, when you have a very small child, it's extremely formed by the collective unconscious. Basically, it's just living the collective unconscious and it's living out instincts. What the education does and the first half of life does is establishing consciousness to be able to do many things, understand many things, know many things, have experienced many things, to act willfully. And at this midpoint, where the sun starts slowly its descent again, this is when the collective gets back again. It's the unconsciousness pushing up this, okay, life is more than your individual achievements in society. This midpoint of life that Jung describes is around 35 to 40. I think it's the age he mentions the most is 38. <laughs> so if you remember Jung's life, this was also at his point, 38, where he had suddenly these visions and his academic life came to an end. He was firmly established at the world. And one thing I haven't told you, he married the second richest woman in Switzerland at this point, which was a very good idea. So when you have the chance, marry the second richest person of 
any country. <laughs> she had uh, many children with her. They were living at a, in Küstnacht, very nice villa, right next to a lake. He had his own sailboat, and every time he had to think, he would get into his sailboat. But at this point of life, he describes that people notice that they are dissatisfied suddenly. They have achieved everything they wanted. They have established themselves. They had a career. For some reason, they are not happy anymore. As this today, we would call it midlife crisis. But back then, this term did not exist yet. All those old solutions are suddenly not working anymore because the person is not a young person anymore. The shift from expanding, expanding, expanding now reverses and it's getting less and less and less. He says, with the movement past the midpoint of life, the psyche is developing for death. It's uh, anticipating death. So this is a big fear of the second part of life, to have less chances, to have less possibilities. And also that all the values and all the solutions we had before are suddenly not working anymore because the psychological needs are different. This is where the collective comes up. And this is where the figure of the anima comes up. Jung said, especially in modern culture, modern Western culture, that we don't have really an education or an institution to catch people at this point of life to help them in the second part. He really described it as what you do in the first part of life, this is all field study. It's collective in the sense as societal, as you try to fit, conform society and achieve society goals. And the second part of life is that you start to engage in cultural, creative endeavors. That is, this is where culture is coming from. There's also another example from Nietzsche. Nietzsche, who also, he was a professor in Basel, same university where Jung studied, not at the same time Nietzsche lived before. He wrote his book, Sus Spoke Zarathustra, at the age of 38 in 10 days. And he spent the rest of his life trying to understand what he's written. And it's this emergent of impersonal collective ideas that suddenly emerge that really dominate the second part of life. There, we don't really have any cultural, institutional support structures. Jung always talked about he wished there would be schools for adults. He said it's a, it's a huge tragedy that there's only a school to get people to the point where they can get a job and get married or, and buy a house, for example, but that there's nothing beyond that and that the psychological needs change and that this is the point where depressions, for example, set in at this midpoint of life because suddenly people realize they're not happy. And he noticed this. He noticed this uh, through his psychotherapeutic work as he found out that Freud is always usable in the first half of life when you have to get people out of the basement of their parents. Move past your father, move past your mother. Try to find the father in the job and in the workplace where you will go. Try to find the mother in a partner. But really to get people out into the world. And this is the, the goal of Freudian psychology to get these people out of the infantile stage of their life. He realized that all those techniques from Freud and also Adler, who said the same things as Freud, but had not sex as a basis, but power, they could not work for people over this midpoint, people older than 35 or 40. The problem was you can't really lure them outside because they are outside. They have established themselves. They have achieved what they wanted to achieve. So, but they're still unhappy. And this is a point where he would take them and let them, for example, draw to realize that something is inside them that is not personal, which is not consciousness, but something impersonal, unconscious that's acting on its own and autonomously. His 
field of study and his therapy was based pretty much on this to get people closer to this collective ideas and these collective systems of the past that were a little bit better fitted to explain what is happening because it's a fearful state to suddenly realize you're not lord in your own house and there are things that are strange and incredible this is also a point where he says that this midpoint of life where this strange archetypal dreams come up with strange imageries and strange situations the problem as you might already realize is the unconscious does something the consciousness is lagging behind it's a little bit like when you look into the sky and you hear a plane when you try to look where the plane is you won't find it you have to see somewhere else because this disconnect between seeing the plane and hearing the plane is because the sound waves have to travel down to you and then you look up but you don't hear where the plane is but rather where it was and it's a little bit like the relationship with unconscious and consciousness the consciousness is always lagging behind it's always the sound and the unconscious is a plane it's the main driver it's this being behind the unconscious and keeping up with it in its movement this is a difficult part because it's suddenly at the midpoint it starts to shift and has a different focus the unconscious pushes the person to do things this pushing out of the parents basement the unconscious also does but when the consciousness is not willing to do it there's a friction and there's conflict in the psyche of the person which means complexes will be formed neurosis will be formed hysteria could emerge it's this maladaptiveness to life that's causing people to seek out therapy in a psychoanalytic context the same happens of course in the second part of life but you have all the impersonal stuff so the second part of life it is this compensating function of the unconscious that's always catching up to the consciousness the consciousness is always limited it's expanding over time but it would like to remain the same and it's always the unconscious pushing against it and trying to get it into new directions it's a huge compensation and the compensation gets bigger and bigger the more you move away because the conscious is very adapted to look at one way of viewing the world and experiencing the world there are all these other ways to experience the world you have your consciousness and when you concentrate on something you blur out all the other things and there's a very great video you can watch on youtube Okay, for, for those who don't know it, I will spoil it. But you see a group of basketball players and they have a basketball and they pass the ball between each other. It's an um, experiment. Normally, the experiment, I would say to the participant of the experiment, okay, try to count how many times the ball is passed. It goes for five, 10 minutes. The person sits there and counts the balls and then the experimenter comes back in and says, okay, how many times? And the person says something, it's not important. Because the experimenter will then say, okay, did you see the gorilla? And the person will say, what gorilla? Like 80% of the people, they don't see it. And they will rewind the tape and show that in the middle of the video, a guy in a huge gorilla costume goes right in the middle of the field of view of the video, bangs his chest and moves to the other side. And people don't see it. That's consciousness. You're completely focused on one part of reality. And you can keep it up. You can become so proficient that you forget of all the other parts and this is what the unconscious does, reminding the of the other parts. It's then basically the gorilla at a certain point comes out of the video and starts banging against your head to remind you that it's also there. That's the unconscious for you. How this is lived, I already alluded before. Like when you're in the first part of life, people don't want to move out of the basement. 
in the second part of life, they don't want to get back in the house because they want to stay outside. They want to be young. They want to have the fast car. They want to have all the possibilities, even though that it's just not what the psyche needs anymore. So when you know the concept of midlife crisis, it's really great description of what's happening psychological there. It is this holding on to the past, not able to move forward, that is causing trouble in the psyche. I'm in the basement, I don't want to get out. So you can constantly rest by the unconscious. Ah, I'm out, I'm established, but I want to keep expanding. At a certain point, the psychics will say, no, turn inwards, live in your internal reality. A little bit like Jung experienced that he started actively to uh, engage with his unconscious and to record this and to create culture, to create art. The Red Book that was done by him is an incredibly, incredible piece of art. He also draws, so it was a really huge, thick book, handwritten, hand-drawn. It took him many, many years to create it, and it was hidden away. It wasn't known until 2011, I think, when it was published after yeah, 50 years after his death. Because he was concerned that people think he's crazy, but because it sounds a little bit crazy. So life is this always changing up and down movement. There's always conflict. There's always you try to find a partner. You try to get a career. You try to buy a house or an apartment in Berlin, which is a crazy idea. Why would you do that? It's always, let's say, pain and suffering. But this means you're alive and they're doing the right thing. So there's no way to get out of it. The Buddha said it right. Life is suffering, but at least you can choose your suffering. And you. this is the sign that you're alive and that you're changing and evolving. At the end of life, there's death. And Jung says the second part of life is the preparation of death. The event that everything then normally should work towards, which is a little bit of a weird concept. This would be practically my little introduction into what Jung understands of life and this concept regarding life. You already find a lot of other concepts closely associated with this. The unconscious, of course, the collective unconscious, consciousness, ego, anima, dreams. This whole path that I try to explain is also very closely associated with individuation. The way of becoming an individual, the seed of the tree becomes the tree. You already have the tree and the seed in the beginning, but it takes time to make it flourish. So the life of a person ideally is this flourishing of the psychological factors and to live a life that is specific to one's own psychological needs. This would be my presentation for this topic and I hope this was understandable and a little bit entertaining and talking about these things. Do you have uh, any feelings or thoughts about it, the way that Jung talked about life?